Chinese Chippendale. The taste for luxury oriental goods had become well established in cosmopolitan European cities by the early 17th century. In particular, Chinese and Japanese porcelain, textiles, and lacquer were avidly sought after by the leaders of fashion and taste. Quite frankly, in response to popular demand by the end of the century, there were exotic forms of decoration augmented by topographical drawings by the famous Dutch travel books had become uh, too imitated by a wide variety of Western artists. The result was a wealth of freely adapted ornamental motifs, often highly fanciful and today basically encapsulated uh, under the term chinoiserie. In furniture, this was the most commonly found in painted decoration, imitating lacquer, uh, however, vaguely known as Japanic. But um, just, a, just a word here that the lacquer as we know it, the chinoiserie was the ornamentation or decoration being done only in the Asian countries. And Japaning was only being done in Britain. Japaning was the result of the lack of communication available to the Asian countries during this time period. Um, a lot of these English designers were caught up in the chinoiserie design and their first premise was to send furniture down or over to Asia and to pay um, captains of ships to, to find the proper, uh, or the, uh, the individuals doing it, the artist. And the problem was uh, a lot of these objects, chairs, tables, clocks, secretaries, were not even coming back. Some would come back in th two, three, four years. And there was no accountability, no phone, no internet. So how do you know where you're sending this stuff? Off the edge of the earth? Possibly. Um, the second situation put forth by the, by the English designers was to send furniture makers and they gave them money to set up studios and shops in the Asian countries and for money for housing uh, with hope that they could actually build the furniture there watch the artisans, how they were to finish with the Yurishi lacquer and uh, possibly steal the secrets of finishing and then assume and assure that everything was sent back to the mother country for distribution. But this, this backfired in a way because the, the furniture makers and the artists that were sent down there to, to fabricate furniture fell in love with the Asian culture and they didn't wish to come back. And uh, it was quite the backfire. So Japaning was the third option, was to try to recreate or re-encapsulate or reproduce Chinese lacquer done with Yurushi lacquer, but using uh, strictly shellac, building up layers and layers. And the issue, um, the issue <clears throat> over time, 200, 250 years, is shellac is highly friable and pieces come off, cracking, severing occurs, to the surface of the film finish. Whereas Yurushi lacquer, I've seen some boat bottoms that have been painted five to 600 years ago where the Yurushi lacquer um, has not fried at all. It's uh, a totally permeable plane. It's totally, um, 
you know, without cracks. So uh, anyway, so this, uh, you know, this is what occurred. It was tried. So it was not even close was the uh, the reproduction of the chinoiserie style using Urushi lacquer. But just keep in mind that Urushi lacquer is coming out of the sumac tree. Um, and it's a similar species to what we have today is the sumac plant. The sumac plant is what we get uh, poisoned from. But some of the trees are like uh, 20, 20 to 30 feet in diameter and they put many spigots in them. And this sap or lacquer as they call it comes out in clear form. And when it dries, it dries jet black. And the other thing is Hiroshi lacquer, when it dries, it needs a wet environment, contrary to all other finishes who need a dry environment. So Hiroshi lacquer dries best uh, with heavy humidified areas or actually water running down its surface. It's a slow dry and it needs the water to contain it. So the finish dries from within the inner surface of the film finish where it meets the substrate and then it dries outwardly. Otherwise, if there's a, a dry or arid environment, it starts drying from the outside in and it starts relieving itself from the substrate. So, but uh, by the time uh, Chippendale's director appeared in 1754, the Chinese style, having suffered a short eclipse, was very much in the ascendant again. This time it was far more all-embracing uh, a newspaper reported somewhat critically, according to the present whim, everything is Chinese or in the Chinese taste, or as it is more modestly expressed, chairs, tables, chimney pieces, and frames, fine looking glasses are all reduced to this new fangled standard. A number of other publications, notably that of Chippendale's collaborator, Matthias Derry, and his associate, George Edwards, a new book of Chinese designs, also encapsulated its new and essentially Rococo character as a whimsically and playful essence. In this style, it was a reaction to the Palladian mainstream, easily coexisting with the equally popular, popular modern Gothic styles. Each one was quite feeding off the other's impulses. The result, um, like Lady Aniston's dressing table, is simply a happy mixture. Its serpentine shape is topped by a pagoda-like canopy, while the carved fretwork of the side cupboards combines suggestions of both Gothic and Chinese designs. The confidence of Chippendale's text and the fluency of his drawings strongly implied that he was already well used to working in this style. He provided, uh, I think about 64 plates for furniture within a Chinese character, over one third of the total, often describing them with considerable relish. Chinese motifs were particularly suitable for carving. Um, thus were, there were pure glasses with no ho-ho birds or dragons, um, beds and sofas with pagoda canopies Chinese cases and bookcases with upturned bells. Uh, we also found bookshelves and china shelves with sides and brackets. Many of the items were associated with interiors belonging to women, bedrooms, dressing rooms, drawing rooms, for of which um, all would oblige with appropriate India and lined with the Indian paper. 
Certain critics deplore the Chinese style for its lack of discipline, since there appeared to be no generally accepted guidelines, let alone any acknowledgement of precedents to be found in real oriental furniture. Chippendale was evidently aware of this and was quite determined to reform the worst excesses while at the same time make the style more appropriate for everyday living. Thus he lengthened a suite of nine chairs, for example, by saying, in the present Chinese manner, improve that taste, it having yet never arrived to any perfection. Doubtless it might be last without seeing its beauty, as it emits of the greatest variety. I think it the most useful of any other. There were clearly experimental times, for there has been nothing like them yet made, says Chippendale. Japan, Japaning still remained popular as ever, always expensive with real oriental lacquer provided by the clients themselves. Could be made up by Chippendale into smart new French inspired pieces. Despite all this style, was on the wane. The Furniture Royale architect William Chambers traveled to China and published examples of genuine Chinese furniture in his Designs of Chinese Buildings, Furniture, Dresses, Machines, and Utensils. Inevitably, this exposed and mediocre nature of European chinoiserie to its deterrent, and the style began to slow decline in popularity. The 1762 director saw a marked reduction in the number of Chinese pieces. The early, 19, early 1770s, however, uh, Chippendale had found many ways at Nostal Prairie, Harewood House, and elsewhere to combine chinoiserie with neoclassicalism in a way which customers found evidently entirely satisfactory. Chippendale Gothic. Gothic was already well established as a popular, often whimsical style for small buildings and interiors by the time the director was first published in 1754. It was sometimes seen as a foil to the rigor and predictability of the Palladian classicalism. The perceived farness of modern or the anarchy of Chinese. It was popularly associated with historical glories of the medieval past. And there was little understanding of the style's evolution, structure, or the coherence of its ornamental vocabulary. This had begun to change under the influence of the Romantic antiquarians, of which Horace Walpole was one of the most famous, and his villa at Strawberry Hill, the most conspicuous example of a more learned and archaeological understanding. There were very few known medieval precedents for Gothic furniture, and until the publication of the director, only a handful of experiments had been attempted to adapt the style to modern and practical needs. Batty Langley's Gothic architecture improved in 1742, and I believe subsequent publications had tried to impose the language of classicism and the orders for architectural furnishings. Chippendale took full cognizance of this in his designs for certain types of furniture, such as bookcases, 
or library tables, which lent themselves to this treatment in which Gothic becomes a decorative type of veneer for motifs uh, which are overlaid on the classical superstructure. Chippendale clearly enjoyed designing in Gothic, uh, intending to bring the style to a new and, and wider audience. And he described how certain chairs could be of use to those that are unequated with this sort of work. His real achievement was to show how its huge variety of delicate frets, friezes, uh, pointed tracery, OG arches, crocketed pinnacles, and clustered columns and finials could be legitimately uh, used in the design of everyday objects, irrespective of structural purpose or correctness. It was the scathing of those who considered his designs, especially those after the Gothic and Chinese manner, as so specious drawings, impossible to be worked off. His designs were widely imitated and adapted, not least by Gillows as a suite of chairs for Lord Muncaster in 1784. Chippendale provided 24 plates with furniture described as being Gothic in the 1754 director and 23 in 1762. They range from furniture for passages or summer houses to libraries, dining rooms, or even bedrooms. Yet it is never possible to be dogmatic when categorizing style in Chippendale's executed furniture. Too frequently he inserts a deliberate socialism or an ambiguous motif which defies explanation, yet which contributes to an entirely satisfactory effect. As the anonymous writer in The World wrote in 1754, how much of late we are improved in architecture, not merely by the adaptation of what we call the Chinese, nor by the restoration of what we call Gothic, but by the happy mixture of both. Classicism and the transition to the antique styles during the Chippendale reign. Chippendale's education and a, an apprenticeship probably included quite a rudimentary training in the rules of classical architecture. Books and manuals such as, again, Batty Langley's Ancient Masonry, as we spoke before, and Treasury, were aimed at country artisans and must have been required reading for ambitious craftsmen like the young Chippendale. As a journeyman in York, his knowledge must have been considerably deepened by being at the center of a country which was in the middle of a building boom, like new houses and villas in the Palladian style. Later, as a mature designer, he acknowledged the supreme importance of architecture in his own sphere in the first ringing sequence of the 1754 director. Of all the arts which are either improved or ornamentated by architecture, that of cabinet making is not only the most useful and ornamental, but capable of receiving a great assistance from it as any whatever. This was followed by the plates of the five orders plagiarized directly from James Gibbs, 
the rules for drawing the several parts of architecture and demonstrations of drawing in perspective view. Many of the illustrations in the first edition show furniture based on classical forms. Pedimented bookcases, tri-beaded tables, high-listered clock cases, and library tables, as implied triumphal arches. Yet, throughout, they are masked by ornament taken from profoundly anti-classical sources, from the Gothic, Chinese, and modern taste. Change was only in the air in the late 1750s and early, 19, early 1760s. And anticipating this, Chip and Bill began a new series of new designs, which were ultimately to be incorporated into the third edition. Surprisingly, some, some reflected very advanced thinking from France, where the new classical revival and the, uh, the Louis XIV revival were well underway. Their architects and designers were highly cerebral in their approach, but this is entirely lacking in Chippendale's interpretation, where the new forms and ornamental details were treated as decorative accessories. In uh, around 1758, Robert Adam, whom Chippendale may have already met through his Scottish connections, returned from Italy with portfolios of drawings from classical sources and a determination to revolutionize designs in Britain. His interpretation of the, the quote, true style of decoration was based on the rise and fall and advance and recess of other diversity of forms and the variety of light moldings he had encountered in the ancient sites of Rome and Spalto. These were to be published by him in the ruins of Spalto in 1764. His use of invention, a term which used at this time to describe the adaptation of gen generic ideas and motifs, was demonstrated to great effect in his works in architecture in 1773. This distinctive new style, today called the neoclassicism, was known to contemporaries as the antique. Although Adams' interiors were brilliant essays in invention, he could almost only rely almost no precedence for furniture design, nor did he have any knowledge of how the new style could be applied to freestanding three-dimensional models. For this, he turned to both Chippendale and Linnell, who for, for some experiments in which they combined earlier features such as serpentine shapes with the new antique decoration, were quick to understand the new simpler forms and repetitive motifs. The antique style. The process has gone almost unrecorded, but it seems quite clear that Adam developed a close professional relationship with Chippendale. The architect required his interiors to be uh, harmoniously furnished, to link visually and aesthetically with their architectural features without being pedantic or even dull. Uh, Chippendale could simply supply this effortlessly with an instinctive grasp of form and ornament and their proper uses. Marquetry decoration reintroduced into Britain in the mid 1760s after an, an eclipse of nearly 50 years 
could imitate the repetitive patterns of classicism and was the ideal medium in which to demonstrate the new repertory of color and ornament, together with judicious use of gilt brass mounts. The sudden demand for skilled marketers and, uh, and metal workers to meet the demands of fashion must have posed a considerable problem for Chippendale at first. Some of his marketry can be uh, quite mundane and, uh, and often possible it's difficult to discern the hands of indifferent craftsmen working on the same piece of furniture as uh, some of the more gifted colleagues. However, at its best, the marketry from Chippendale's workshop, always anonymous, is, is equal to, to that produced in France or Germany or, or even in Holland at this time. Chippendale clearly had access to Adam's designs, but it is telling that at Harewood, probably the, the, the biggest commission for both parties, there are no drawings by Adam for furniture. When he, when he first arrived there in July of 1767, Chippendale wrote uh, that he needed to make many designs and knowing that I had had enough time, I went to York to do them. Clearly, he was as confident working in the new style of Adam as in the old ones, which he produced himself. Chippendale's relationship with other architects working on the antique style could, was quite less harmonious. Sir William Chambers considered himself a very poor connoisseur of furniture and even dared to suggest that uh, Chippendale's designs for furniture at Melbourne House may be improved just a little bit. Some of these pieces might indeed have something of Chambers' hand in them. Throughout this period, the influence of France remained strong. Despite the temporary in, uh, interruption of the Seven Years' War, Paris was the destination of everyone, as even it is today, craftsmen or consumers, who aspired to be truly fashionable. Chippendale was certainly there in 1768, and the following year was caught attempting to import five dozen French chair frames as lumber, thus avoiding high import duties. So over the, over the uh, a 15 to 20 year period, Chippendale was actually put in jail on three separate occasions for trying to smuggle the latest French designs at the, at the, uh, the French showings, which occurred once a year. They tried bringing the pieces across the, the border through Calais into England uh, uh, at full, some were in pieces, some were cut up, some were hidden uh, as food uh, and things of this nature. So a lot of Chippendale's designs, or I'd say most of them were heavily influenced by the latest cutting edge French designs. In addition, leading French ebenistas and menusier were known to visit London and it is inconceivable that they would not make contact with Mr. Chippendale and other makers, because these were great business partners. A distinctive hybrid style quickly emerged, including a whole group of oval and shaped chairback armchairs and bergeres, which were often difficult to distinguish from their French counterparts. By the mid 1770s, the antique style and interiors was becoming increasingly refined. Uh, and by this stage, Thomas Jippendale Jr. was without doubt taking increasing responsibility for the artistic side of the business so that it is often difficult to determine 
where the father's work ended and the son's begun. Chippendale Jr. made his own mark as independent designer with the publication of his own Sketches of Ornament, 1779. The uh, success of the first two editions of the director resulted in the appearance of several new books uh, of furniture designs. It was, these were offsprung, uh, including Thomas Johnson's 12 Girondandel, 1755, and 150 new designs in 1761, as well as a number of smaller titles. The thread of Inus and Maeve's more ambitious serialized A General System of Useful and Ornamental Furniture, which was later published as the Universal System of Household Furniture, probably prompted Chippendale to announce a new edition of his director in 1759. The weekly serialization of the plates did not run according to plan, and the new book was fully and finally complete in April 1762. It contained 106 new plates, in addition to 94 of the original, 16 from earlier editions, and encompassing about 200 in all. The new plates were often separately in sheets at, again, one pound, or the full set bound, as we previously said, anywhere from uh, 12 pounds to uh, maybe 13 pounds. After some initial confusion over the correct protocol, the book was dedicated to H.R.H. Prince William, Duke of Gloucester. Customers. Uh, customers um, among Chippendales, among these were some of which showed distinctly novel, neoclassical or antique features, um, predating even architects' use of the same features in their furniture. Chippendale's use of the Caryatids dated 1760, just two years after they were first published by Leroy in Paris, and two years before James Stewart's Antiquities of Athens in 1762. Chippendale shows uh, an, an earlier entirely different use of, of nymphs and satyrs, satyrs in terms uh, for table legs elsewhere. He boldly used implied classical orders with fluted and reeded columns, pillars and entablatures for tables, chairs, clock cases and bedposts, husk flowers, festoons, ram's heads, key and wave motifs, all make their appearance for the first time this time. Clearly Chippendale had kept well abreast of avant-garde design developments in France even on occasion alluding to the vogue for the Louis XIV revival. In these early years, the difference between his interpretation of the antique and the architects is that Chippendale saw it essentially as a new vocabulary of decorative motifs to be used freely in conjunction with other styles. It was apparently some years before Chippendale fully mastered the architectural rigor which underpinned Adam's revolutionary style. David Allen's painting, The Connoisseurs, depicts three friends discussing an engraving, while a portfolio of other works leans against the chair behind. Men like these form the core clientele for the fashionable furniture trade, wealthy, well-educated, 
well-traveled and discerning men. But although London's furniture makers relied on such customers for the bulk of their work, almost all have remained anonymous. Consequently, our knowledge of Chippendale's customers is quite skewed towards aristocrats and landowners, bankers and government ministers. The common factor was not age, geography, political allegiance or social status, but money. Chippendale's workshop was one of perhaps a dozen in London catering to the elite clientele who demanded the best furnishings that money could buy in the world. Why choose Chippendale? The nexus of big Yorkshire commissions might suggest regional solidarity played a role in supporting the Otley-born tradesmen. But on its own, this would not have swayed the hard-headed Edwin Lascaux or the well-traveled William Wendell. Robert Adams' recommendation must have also counted, but Adam could not have asked or risked his reputation purely on personal liking. Chippendale clearly had something special, and rich people were prepared to pay for it. His furniture was always original and quite distinctive, while remaining practical and having many uses. Many craftsmen could make sound furniture, and many artisans could dream up beautiful designs. But Chippendale could do both. He combined solid craftsmanship with artistic flair in a way that few competitors could ever match. Even the wealthiest customers needed furniture for everyday use and for immediate purchase, so it was usual for furniture makers to keep a range of stock to suit. Pattern chairs and parts of chairs, small tables and parts of tables, dressing chests and dressing glasses were available from stock or could quickly be assembled from ready-made components on hand. Many of these items were also very mundane and generic, that they could hardly be distinguished from pieces supplied by other furniture makers. But most of Chippendale's furniture was bespoke to some degree, even if only in small details. Chippendale's hand can usually be discerned not only in the generic models he invented, but also his signature motifs, key frets or paterni or in swags in certain combinations and distinctive details of arm or foot design. The big money was made in bespoke commissions for major clients, which allowed the workshop to, to demonstrate the full range of its capabilities. It's, in some cases, Chippendale dealt directly with the client, discussing room colors, types of fabric, levels of trim, the quantity of type of seating, the number of case pieces, etc. But for the larger projects, which involved the building and furnishings in a new house or modeling of an existing one, and an architect would often be a, quote, go-between. Thus, good relations with architects were important with Chippendale, and Chippendale seemed to have got, got it well and hit it right with both James Payne and Robert Adam, who probably vital in securing major commissions at Brockett Hall, Newbury Hall, Harewood House and at Melbourne House. The relationship between Chippendale and the architect Sir William Chambers was not so good, but where trust goodwill existed between all parties, Chippendale had a great deal of latitude in his work.
And the key to success, I think, with, with such a degree into which he could realize his client's vision was unheard of. Chippendale's firm did not just make furniture. Workmen were sent on site to measure up, make plans, and even do estimates. Consult and speak with other tradesmen. Once the, the, the making was complete, they delivered, they unpacked, and they set up the furniture. They mended any damage incurred in the transit, even like today when, when, when my studio makes furniture, and made in situ alterations where necessary. They hung mirrors, they put up curtains, um, even applied silk wall coverings or printed wallpaper and, and fitted wall trims. Um, for Harewood House in Paxton, Chippendale designed wallpaper and, and had it made. For David Garrick and Sir William Robinson, Chippendale arranged removals uh, from storage and he was found frequently asked to repair furniture. Chippendale would even arrange for beds to be aired out from bugs and, and mattresses to be flipped and turned. And, and like many of his rivals, he could either rent or lend furniture for short-term use. He kept a stock of Oriental and European carpets, uh, at carpets woven at Axminster for, for client specifications. He also uh, kept china, glassware, dressing table, etc., um, and washstands and, and even night tables. In 1772, Chippendale managed the funeral of Lady Heathcote. He actually supplied the coffins, hired pallbearers, and supplied black hat bands, glove scarves, and hoods for the mourners. He hired and fitted out the hearse and dealt with the raw arrangements from the quarterage between London and the family seat at Normanton Park in Rutland. Chippendale was a, a truly comprehensive cradle-to-grave furnishings concern. Great, great term. Cradle-to-grave furnishings concern. No one else do I know was doing something like that. No tradesman could afford to offend a client, particularly when the client's patronage extended to his wider family, friends, political and business associates also. Uh, consequently, it was sometimes difficult for Chippendale to get paid, and this became a huge, huge problem, as sometimes it is for even me today. When customers did pay, it was often in bills or of exchange or promissory notes dated weeks or months ahead. Can you imagine? Rather than cash, and sometimes demands were met with a blank refusal of payment. And almost just like he should have been honored to work for some of these aristocrats. As Sir Edward Natchbull put it, as I receive my rents once a year, so I pay my tradesmen's bills once a year. Poor cash flow is probably the biggest problem faced by most furniture makers. And again, as I say, as is today, as there's so few of us around. It is by no accident that Chippendale's most contentious professional relationship with Sir Roland Wynne of Nostel Priory occurred in the late, I think, 1760s, when he was beset by creditors after James Rainey's death. When Chippendale grew impatient, Sir Rowland's response was brutal. You may expect to find me as a great as an enemy, as I will ever was your friend. I shall take care to acquaint those gentlemen I have recommended you 
and desire that you will oblige me in employing some other person to do your services next time. In the face of such threats like this, Chip and Tail had no option but to be complacent and at times compliant, allowing Sir Roland to establish a position of social and moral superiority which he exploited without scruple. It would be wrong to assume, however, that tradesmen were entirely powerless in such circumstances. Would you believe it? In fact, so much of Chippendale's furniture was priced in round sums strongly suggests that prices were arrived at as much by shrewd estimates of what the customer would stand for as by true cost of materials and labor. Chippendale's Coffin Furniture, 1772. As we previously just mentioned, Chippendale was one of the few or possibly the only that built furniture and had taken care of the client entirely right to the grave. Furniture makers and upholders were often required to act as undertakers, and Chippendale was no exception. In 1772, the firm directed the funeral arrangements for the Dowager Lady Heathcote, requested by her son, Sir Gilbert, who was a valued customer of Chippendale. Chippendale delegated, uh, delegated the job to his partner, Thomas Haig, and the surviving bill, amounting to 121 pounds, uh, details all the expenses, including accessories, was, must have been brought in from specialist suppliers on a last-minute basis. These included the lead-lined coffin, an outer coffin covered with a black velvet pall, and two rows of the best brass nails available, and a pair of strong handles amounting to all 17 pounds. The finely engraved brass plate cost four pounds. Then came the expenses for the morning hat bands, the gloves for the tenants and the staff, the hearse and horses with ostrich plumes and the journey from London to Rutland, the opening of the family vault in addition at Normanton and then to the interment. In 1971, Normanton Church was desacricated as it lay within the area of the proposed new reservoir at Rutland. The family vault was opened and the remains lifted to be reinterred elsewhere. This was an opportunity to take and study Chippendale's only known coffin and some of the hardware which was given to the Chippendale Society and is now displayed. Chippendale's Legacy. The director earned Chippendale a national reputation in his own lifetime. A sizable quantity of mid-18th century Chippendale furniture survives today, made by provincial furniture makers such as Gillows of Lancaster and Alexander Peter of Edinburgh. Copies of the director found their way to North America and the West Indies over the years, and to Europe, 
for which a French language version was produced actually in 1762. But by uh, around 1800, the Rococo style epitomized by the director was long out of date, um, superseded by neoclassicism, of which Chippendale itself was a draft and deft exponent. And then by the Greek and Egyptian revivals emanating from Paris in the 1790s and early 1800s. In the 1820s, there was a revival of interest in the Rococo, and Chippendale's name returned to prominence with the publication in and about uh, 1834, a collection of ornamental designs, chiefly after Thomas Chippendale, by the publisher John Wheel. Ironically, this reprint of 18th century designs did not contain a single plate by Chippendale. But by the middle of the 19th century, Chippendale become a shorthand for any British Rococo style furniture. Towards the end of the 19th century, most British furniture manufacturers included Chippendale style furniture in their catalogs. Official recognition of Chippendale status came in 1905 with the installation of a large full-length statue on the facade of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. So by the beginning of, say, the 20th century, the name Chippendale was firmly associated with high-quality furniture making. And again, as we began this episode, I, I talked about how my stepfather made reference to one day if I ever reached the ability to build Chippendale furniture, I would have arrived. Um, at that point, it had a worldwide currency, the name Chippendale, particularly in the United States, where the Chippendale chair became the most recognizable emblems of the colonial revival movement. Since the end of the Second World War, the name Chippendale has been adopted for a variety of unlikely commercial products because it was guaranteed brand recognition. Chip and Dale were two chipmunk cartoon characters created by Walt Disney Cartoon Studios in 1943. The comedy Double Act initially featured alongside established Disney characters such as Donald Duck, but in the 1950s they starred in three full-length cartoons. A number of Chip and Dale comic books were also published in between 1955 and 1984. Uh, in 1989, Chip and Dale were revived for a new series, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, which spawned spinoffs for TV and video games, which are still, I believe, available today. In 2014, Walt Disney Pictures announced a live action movie combined with CGI. The Chippendales are an all-male dance troupe created in 1975 by the owners of the Destiny 2 nightclub in Los Angeles. They were named after the club's Chippendale-style furniture collection, a huge collection of furniture. The aim was to solve the club's financial difficulties by attracting a new upmarket of all-female audience. The Chippendales' combination of slick choreography, choreography and male striptease was an instant success. 
and the troupe now performs in a purpose-built theater in Las Vegas, as well as on the tour, and has a worldwide following. The British film comedy The Full Monty in 1997, about a group of unemployed Yorkshire miners raising money with a striptease act, was inspired by the Chippendales. In the 21st century, the Chippendale name is still powerfully associated with the highest of quality, the highest craftsmanship and tradition. But it is interpreted in many different ways, from Venturi Scott Brown, Chippendale chair with grandmother pattern, to Arthur Brett's Chippendale style bookcase model 5000. Among collectors of say, genuine 18th century furniture, the term reproduction has a pejorative meaning. But for some customers, reproduction furniture, and you must understand this, for some customers, repro reproduction furniture combines the best of both, both worlds. And this has been a mantra that I've lived by for about 30 years. The style and quality of the 18th century with the robustness and reliability of the 21st century. High quality Chippendale reproductions. One of the biggest markets of Chippendale style furniture today is in Asia where abundant raw materials and low labor costs allow reproduction of Chippendale chairs to be made for less than $50 each. In the United Kingdom, a number of manufacturers pride themselves on matching the quality and workmanship of the 18th century originals even today. And their furniture commands very high prices. These are very top-notch, bespoke furniture makers, both new and secondhand. At a more mundane level, there are kitchen manufacturers, jointers, and builders, decorators, and other trades in the UK which still produce the Chippendale to sell their service and products. This is much less evidence in America today. There is a school in Philadelphia called the Skiff Chippendale School of Furniture Making. By the middle of the 18th century, there were well-educated furniture-making traditions in most British North American colonies, each with a distinctive regional style developed to suit a mainly local clientele. So again, in America, 18th century regions, New York style, Philadelphia style, Charleston style, Baltimore style, Boston style, Newport style. Nevertheless, both the makers and their consumers kept an eye on London, always on London for stylistic changes. So it often uh, makes me chuckle that when I, I listen to some of these connoisseurs that, that are on, say, the Antiques Roadshow and, and do other tours of uh, major museums that are offering one, two, three-day symposiums, they say, for instance, block front furniture was developed in Newport, hogwash. It was developed 50 years later in England. London made furniture. There was already a flow of immigrant English craftsmen bringing with them the latest London styles and techniques. While booksellers retailed print, printed design books from the presses of London and other European capitals. So again, um, these, the London made furniture and craftsmen were producing design books that the Americans or the colonists in the 18th century were trying to get their hands on. And in actual fact, the 
the, uh, the British were trying to keep these design books out of their hands to create less competition. The director may have reached North America as early as 1755. A number of prominent 18th century American furniture makers are known to have owned copies of these. We have found this in diaries and inventories. And some even use Chippendale's designs for their own trade cards as copies. However, the highly wrought Rococo style did not find universal favor among the generally pragmatic colonists. There is little evidence the director's influence in Boston and scarcity more, scarcely more in New York, but in Philadelphia and Charleston. The book had a definite impact. So in Boston and Newport, not a lot of impact, but in New York and Philadelphia and Charleston, it had a great design impact. And these can be seen by the great furniture makers and designs in our museums today. By 1760, Philadelphia was the largest and most populous city in British North America. Uh, and, and one where the Rococo style of furniture was enthusiastically adopted. Hence, the director was enthusiastically adopted there. Thomas Affleck and Benjamin Randolph, two of Philadelphia's most prominent furniture makers in the 18th century, owned copies of the director. And chairs attributed to them and other Philadelphia makers demonstrate a close relationship with several Chippendale designs. As, as a, in Britain, the design was rarely copied without modification, and the result was Chippendale with a pronounced Philadelphia accent. This ultimately became the style most closely associated with the late 19th and 20th century American Chippendale re revival examples of Philadelphia case furniture made to Chippendale designs, and these often thrive and survive today. Further south, the Port of Charleston, South Carolina, was probably as closely connected, both commercially and politically, to London. So again, we were seeing Boston and Newport did not have a really close London connection, so they were not privy to those latest London designs. Some Charleston furniture is almost indistinguishable from that made in London and at least one surviving example was taken from a director plate. Other examples attributed to makers in the southern and middle colonies are also known, such as a table attributed to William Buckler of Richmond County, Virginia, who had a copy of the 1754 director in his possession when he died in 1774. Isolated examples by unknown makers also occur elsewhere in the South.